Hello, I'm Arianna Raji Lee, founder of Pasha Mama, and welcome to our conversation, In Conversation, the podcast where I speak to women's health practitioners, baby and toddler experts, mamas and mums-to-be, to find out about what they do and how their story can support you through modern motherhood. Let's get started, shall we? Hi guys, I hope you are well and are settling into the new year as comfortably as uh, can be expected. Today's episode is a very, very weighty one. Um, You can tell from the title. Um, I speak to, for all intents and purposes, a family member, an extended family member, Kat, about her son's and her family's experience of leukemia. Her son Felix was diagnosed with infant leukemia at the age of seven months. And we hear her story and we hear his story and their story as a family. And I'm going to spoiler alert this for you. There is a happy ending. Felix is healthy and happy and five years cancer free. But it's a very powerful, very emotional story, as you can expect it to be. But one that I think also is uplifting and inspirational and one that we could all learn from. And because the episode is focused on illness, on virus, on immune systems, we bring it to the present day and we talk about contagion control. We talk about her son and COVID. We talk about UK healthcare systems and the importance of cleanliness and people's understanding of COVID and what we can do on a social level to protect not only ourselves, but also the people around us. I also just want to caveat the episode by saying that neither myself nor Kat are medically trained. So any advice that you hear is purely from her own experience as a mother, a woman and a wife. So take a deep breath, sit back and enjoy this beautiful, heavy, but powerful story. Hi Kat, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. I um. I was thinking about how we would explain how we know each other. And um, that's a really interesting modern family-esque type situation, don't you think? 100%. When I saw you in the theatre, when, when we went to go see uh, Roxy singing uh, in the theatre, and you introduced me to your friend as your step-sister? Or I can't remember whether you were my, you were, I was your step cousin or aunt or sister (laughs) I I probably definitely covered all bases if we're using labels I guess you are my half niece and nephew's step sister is that correct oh okay yeah but um we hate using labels and you're actually step because officially they my dad adopted them later on in life so they're actually my brother and sister Great. And they're, and my, they're my, my niece and nephew are more like my brother and sister. So if you're their, bro- if you're their sister and I'm their sister, well, then we're basically sisters, right? <laughs> Definitely modern family. 100%. We could, be, we, could, we could use up most of the podcast time talking about that, but we're not here to talk about that. 
Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, why don't you introduce yourself um, and your family to our listeners? Okay, so um, I'm Kat and I've got four children, Leo 11, Felix is about to turn nine, and seven-year-old twins, Mia and Layla. And we live in London. And I have a husband who, who I've been married to for 12 years. And I've known him for 30. Amazing. I didn't know you'd known each other for that long. Yeah. So big family um, in a pandemic. How has it been this last 10 to 12 months for you guys? It's been intense, as I'm sure it has, you know, for everybody. Um, and everyone has their different journey through COVID. Uh, it's been a lot of upheaval for us, uh, partly to do with the pandemic and financial issues, partly to do with family stuff and adjustments and changing, you know, our expectations, I guess, of how to live. And we've uh, moved all our kids' schools. Did you do that during the pandemic? Well, we went into, they were still in school through the first lockdown. And during that period, we came to the conclusion that we would rather have them local uh, within walking distance of the house. Also for financial reasons, it was unrealistic for us to want to send our kids to private school having four. Um, <clears throat> I mean, we started out going to private school because of um, Felix being diagnosed at such a young age with leukemia and me not really being able to cope with any other decisions beyond, you know, what's going to happen in the next couple of hours. So we took the places at these private schools while his, he was still in treatment and it just transpired that it's not what, we felt was best for our family. So I'm grateful to COVID in the sense that it forced change upon us and we've managed to ride the wave as best as we can. Um, but this isn't the first time that we've met hard challenges in our family. So, you know, we're very fortunate, fortunate to be quite flexible. Yeah. And um, so you've, you've, Mentioned Felix, I, that's kind of who we're here to sort of talk about today. Um, why don't you start by just, if you don't mind sharing no. that, that story with us? So we had, we had Felix when Leo was two and a half. Um, I had struggled to have a second child and had uh, ectopic, very near death experience. So having getting Felix was quite a miracle in itself. Um, it was also a time when the first sort of massive financial crisis was going on and uh, Alexi was out of work for quite a while, which was wonderful for us because we were able to enjoy our small little family and our new life together. Um, but he got his dream job and they had said, uh, why don't you take a holiday before you start? Because this is going to be intense and full on for the next couple of years. 
So we booked ourselves a holiday. Uh, we went to Dominican Republic and I had said, if we're going to travel that far, because we don't really go on many holidays, you know, financially, it's, it's very difficult for us. Um, we've got to go and see my mum on the way back who lives in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I'm not going to travel all the way across the world and not stop off at my mum's on the way home. Anyway, uh, they both got sick on the plane on the way to Dominican Republic and there had been a flu going around. Um, Leo bounced back within a couple of days and Felix didn't. And he had a soaring fever the whole time we were there. We, we were extremely lucky that there was a GP on site in the all-inclusive hotel. Um, they gave us antibiotics. Um, which didn't seem to work. I went back, they got more antibiotics and we just kept him sort of between the bath and the swimming pool and the sink in cold water for the whole 10 days that we were there. And I just thought, you know, it'll be okay. We'll get home. You know, I was a very relaxed mum. I made a point of not, I really didn't want to be one of those panicky first time mums who's always down at the GPs. Um, and, you know, really tried to be relaxed and take everything in my stride. We arrived in Memphis and his antibiotics ran out and his fever spiked. And I just knew there was something wrong because, you know, 10 days of antibiotics, anything should have resolved by then. And his fever went through the roof. And the next morning we were getting ready for Halloween because it was 31st of October, a very special holiday for us now. Um, and I was changing his clothes and he had these tiny little dots on his legs, tiny bruises, which are called petechiae, which um, I now know is a, is a sign of there being an issue with your white blood cells. And that usually shows up towards the end of life. Um, you, your skin becomes very sensitive and bruises very easily and the blood, the capillaries pop very easily. So I just sensed something was wrong. He was very yellow. And I thought, you know what, I'll just go to the GPs down the road, get another course of antibiotics, get on the plane and go home because we were due to go home two days later. So get everyone in their uh, Halloween outfits. Felix is seven months old at this point. Really bonny baby, very fat and very settled and sweet and very cried very little, uh, dressed as Yoda. And uh, Leo was dressed as Batman. And we went to this GP's office and it was, you know, very, very different system from here. In America, they have everything on site. Um, ultrasound, x-ray, blood tests, the spinning machines, everything, which I'm so grateful for today. Um, they took some blood. We were seen by a angry bird, these are the pediatricians, dressed one as an angry bird, half a cow, uh, the bottom half of the cow, by the way, and a sumo wrestler. I mean, sorry, this must have been the most bizarre experience for you anyway, let alone people, adults dressed half as, half as cows and sumo wrestlers and your youngest as Yoda. <laughs> It was, I mean, that's an average day in our household, to be quite honest. It's not abnormal, but it was, you know, as trippy experiences go, this one tops it off. So they took some blood. We waited around. Um, 
Oh, and my mom is with me and we're both dressed as full on witches with massive hats and capes and everything. And uh, they come back and they take some more blood and I start twitching and I start, th- you know, I don't know. I just, I knew something was wrong. Um, they came can I ask, back- can I, sorry, can I just ask, when you say that you know something is wrong, I totally, you know, mother's intuition is, is definitely a thing. Did you think cancer at all? Did that cross your mind or is it nowhere near that? Yeah. yeah. You know, we don't have a history of uh, childhood cancers in the family. And leukemia is something that, to be quite honest, I didn't even really know mm. anything about as far as in childhood or never mind infant leukemia. Mm. Um, I thought worst case scenario, kidney infection or liver infection, because he was quite yellow and I'd had kidney issues when I was a child. So and your mind obviously tries to draw links with anything that you can understand. So they came they took um, second round of bloods. We waited. They came back, and these the sumo wrestler, the cow, and the angry bird <laughs> had band aids on their fingers. And they stood around, and there were two or three others dressed in there. They were dressed as um, Raggedy Ann and Andy. And they came in en masse and surrounded us. And I just thought, there's something very wrong here. And they said, Your son has leukemia. You need to go to the hospital immediately. Now, in my experience, usually you go to a doctor's office and they say it could be an ear infection or it could be, you know, a virus or it could be something else. There's always an it could be this or that. And I, I, I said, sorry, what? And they said, your son has leukemia. You need to go to the hospital right now. And, and I was just I, could, I was so stunned I couldn't believe it. I, I honestly thought there'd been a mistake. And I said that, you know, they, there must be a mistake. And they explained to me that they had taken his blood and they had a white blood cell count machine on site. And the average white blood cell count diagnosis for a child with leukemia is somewhere from 1700 white blood cells to 2400. Their machine went up to 10 and he was off the chart. And that's why they thought the machine was broken because his count was so high. And I'm still thinking, well, what else could it be? And they said, no, you don't understand. It can't be anything else. This is the only thing. I didn't know anything about white blood cells or leukemia or cancer. And like I said, cancer in children or anything else. And I was in shock. Um, My mum, God bless her, kind of, took the brunt of the shock for me and sort of bulked and keeled over a little bit. So there was a big moment about getting some sugar inside my mum so that she didn't faint. And meanwhile, they're telling me that there's a children's research hospital down the road and we need to get there as soon as possible and that they're going to call and have us register on the way. And it's all going in, but it's not. It was so surreal. And then when they said, you need to go now, and I said, well, I need to go back to the house and get his bottles and some change of clothes. And, you know, the, my, I have a pillow that I travel with when I get stressed. I know <laughs> I need my pillow, <laughs> obviously really important. And they said, no, you need to get in the car and go now, 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 now. Uh, so I called my dad and I called my husband and I got in the car and I went 
straight with my mum to the hospital downtown. Now, St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital is the only research hospital in the world that deals with pediatric uh, life-threatening illnesses, primarily cancer, in the world. Um, I'd always known about St. Jude's because it's very much part of the culture of the city of Memphis. And, you know, it is something that people fundraise for all the time. In fact, it's very prevalent across America. It's a bit like Great Ormond Street in the sense that we all know Great Ormond Street. Mm. But I did not put two and two together in my head because I was in such shock. So we drive down there. They're calling me in the car, registering him over the phone. And that's when I really started to panic because, again, in my experience, you go to the GP, they say, come back in a couple of weeks if he's still got fever. And then you go to emergency room and wait for four hours while, you know, I mean, obviously, it's not always four hours. So a lot of times it depends on who's sicker ahead of you or how sick you are. But I always think of, you know, there's always a wait in the waiting room to fill out forms and so on. They were doing it all over the phone and I started to panic. So we pull up outside the hospital and it's midday and it's trick-or-treat hour at St. Jude's Children's Hospital where 3,000 active patients and all the staff are in fancy dress trick-or-treating in the main lobby. And It was sort of like that scene in E.T. where you see all the kids on the road, typical American trick-or-treating, only these kids have all got cancer. And they're all wearing face masks with tubes coming out of their noses mm. and IV bags. And some of them are on stretchers and everyone is having the best time ever. And it was seriously insane. <laughs> and it's, I have to say, it's such a fond memory because it was sort of like, in doc, uh, you know, we, we came at the most opportune moment for us to, to be introduced to something so absolutely hideous. And, you know, my kids are in fancy dress already, which, you know, they were, they were up for it and happy. And we went in, we met with uh, the triage staff, and then a woman came through who looked like she'd come off a film set in LA. Blonde hair, fabulous white coat, totally gorgeous, beautifully well-dressed. And I thought, who the hell is this junior doctor? Like, seriously, you're saying my son is dying and you're giving me this woman? So she starts to explain to me, you know, this is a children's research hospital. We know that we're pretty sure that Felix has got uh, ALL, infant lymphoblastic leukemia, acute infant lymphoblastic leukemia. And uh, you can have two choices. You can either do the European protocol or our testing protocol. And I said, well, I need to go home. I've got to get to Great Ormond Street. And they said, well, you're not, you're not going anywhere. If you leave this hospital, he'll be dead within two hours. Is that so, what she said to you? That's when it really struck that they were panicking and I could see that they were panicking. And that moment you know everything just fell away because they weren't guaranteeing that they could save him they were just going to do their best and I had to decide then and there what to do and I was on my own you know um 
God bless my mum. She couldn't string a sentence at that point. She was terrified. And they said to me, you need to choose and you need to choose now. And I said, well, you know, what's the difference? And they said to me, well, the Infantra, the European protocol at that time had only, it hadn't been changed for 20 years. And the type of leukemia that Felix presented with, they they bracket um, diagnosis by age, sex, and weight, and also other factors like, um, you know, if you have a congenital disorder or Down syndrome or um, any other underlying conditions, and you are put through the protocols according to the age, sex, and weight of your child when they present. And they told me that in 20 years, since they started this particular trial, they'd only had four, five other boys, age seven months old, weighing this much, present with his particular disease. So out of, you know, 3,000 some odd patients a year, over a 20 year period, they'd only seen five other kids and two of which had survived. his white blood cell count was 480,000. Bearing in mind, as I said, the average diagnosis is 2,800. His body was totally riddled with cancerous cells. And I had minutes to make a decision. And I said to the lady who, you know, subsequently has become a very good friend and is Felix's godmother, um, I said to her, what would you do in, if it was your child? She said, no, 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 I don't answer that question. I get asked it all the time. I couldn't possibly answer that question. And I said, excuse my language, I don't really give a fuck how many other people have asked you. I'm asking you. And I'm asking you because I need to know the answer. And the only way I can help, you know, you need to help me make this decision. And she said, um, if I had to answer that question, I would want to be in this hospital and I wouldn't want me as their doctor. And it turned out that the research doctors at St. Jude's Hospital do one rotation per week, clinical rotation on the floor where they take on new patients. And it just so happened that we walked in the day that she was on rotation. And it just so happens that she is the foremost mind in America Mm. infant leukemia which is one in seven billion chance that we found or she found us or we found her. And I know that people can query all the time about right place, right time or serendipity or coincidence or God moments or whatever you want to call it. But that was engineered specifically. The universe engineered that to save Felix's life. Because had we been anywhere else, anywhere else in the world, he would be dead over and over again. And it's something unbelievably amazing. (laughs) I don't really, I mean, I don't know if that's actually relevant to our conversation, but it's important as part of his story. I think it's totally relevant. I think, I mean, I have tears in my eyes and goosebumps when you said that. I think that, I actually don't think I've ever heard this story from you before. So um, thank you for, first of all, thank you for sharing it. Second of all, I'm so, you know, so sorry that 
you had to go through that. You went through that. Um, I'm so glad that Felix is, there is a happy ending to this. You look at the outcome, you know, there's nothing to be sorry for. Yeah. It's been, you know, the blessings that we've received on so many levels have been absolutely incredible. On the, you know, on the downside of that, I have struggled uh, with my own sanity or mental health or whatever you want to call it after he came through the other side. And it's been a major struggle for me as a mum, as a woman, and as a human to reconcile that experience, to have to watch your child, you know, come near death over and over again. He was treated for, we, so we overnight moved to Memphis. I had a bag of bathing suits, basically. And me and my two sons just relocated overnight. And we spent two and a half years there, during which time I also got pregnant and had the twins and grew them and my family pretty much on my own. I mean, my husband, God bless him, was wonderful and he did the best that he could, but he had to go back and start his work. And he came back for nine weeks at the beginning. Um, and during the two and a half years, he would come back and forth as much as he could. And we were unbelievably lucky to have so many family members come and help out. And, you know, I think you asked me um, earlier before, before we had this conversation, um, how it was for the rest of the family and how Leo was or was not affected by the treatment and, you know, the trauma of what went on, because it was traumatic as far as, you know, everything you know falls away and, and life changes overnight. And we went from really pretty feral family to, you know, a hermetically sealed bubble overnight. We went from feral to sterile. <laughs> Literally. I mean, I remember one of my girlfriends once, um, she was over at the house before the kids got sick and I'd given one of them cowpaw because he was teething and I, you know, plunged the cowpaw into the child's mouth and then licked it off and put it back in the drawer. And she was like, that is so disgusting. Like, I can't even bear how vile and I was happy with the kids playing in the mud, you know, biting their nails out there in the garden, playing with the foxes, bit of dirt never hurt anyone. And we went from that to having to live in a completely 100% sterile environment. Nothing could, no fresh air, nothing could touch the floor. Everything that he touched had to be boiled. Um, his rum and everything that came out of his body was toxic to us uh adjusting to you know i still have trouble with the thoughts that they say when you're on a plane if the oxygen masks come down you have to put yours on first before you can help someone else i still struggle with that and i was forced to to, to face that in in the sense that when he was first doing the chemo we were learning about taking care of him and becoming essentially his primary carer. They said to me, if he throws up and it hits you, 
make sure you wipe it off yourself first because it will burn your skin. And of course, you know, he was a tiny baby and he would projectile vomit and sort of, you know, smile afterwards at me like this beautiful little being. And the first few times it happened, I didn't, I immediately went to him to wash him down. And I've got, you know, on my knees and my wrists and my chest, um, the skin is still not quite, it has a different quality to it from where the, the puke used to hit me. And that child could pro projectile vomit like you wouldn't believe. I mean, he could go six feet, no problem. <laughs> Just like in the movies. At some then, distance. I mean, unbelievable. One, we, I know it's six feet because I actually measured it once. <laughs> he was sitting in his cot in the, in the hospital room and it splashed the door, which was six feet away. <laughs> And it was like the exorcist, but he would just, he would empty his whole body violently. And then he'd giggle at me like, you know, ta-da, <laughs> look what I can do, mummy. Uh, you know, that level of, um, you just, it is what you make of it, I think is what I was trying to get at. I made a decision the day that we realized what, what was going to happen in our lives, that it was going to be fun no matter what. And I was going to make it the best experience I could, however long he lived or didn't, and however long we had to stay, so that this was just going to be our family's experience. And it wasn't something that we were going to push back against or make up some kind of fictional enemy of cancer or anything else. It was just the way it was. And we were just going to get on with it and make the best of it. And... In my darker moments, afterwards, I did question whether I did a good job or not. And I think we all do as parents, you know. But recently I, I actually sat down with Leo and was talking to him, asking him a few questions. And he said that it was the best time of his life. Those two and a half years. I mean, that's setting the bar quite low. <laughs> I mean, as far as he's not he's not scarred by it. He's not damaged in any way. And Felix doesn't really remember any of it, luckily, because mm. it, obviously it was very hard on him. I think it's, you know, it's more me that's left with the psychological scars of seeing that. You yeah. Know, your child flatline is, is fairly horrifying. Gosh. I mean, the fact that you, the fact that you decided to put such a, you know, positive spin on it and, and, and embrace the, you know, this is, I'm going to make this the best, the best situation that I can for my family. Like that is just, that's incredible cat really. It's so inspirational and, you know, and it, it worked, as you say, Leo had, had best time of his life there. You said, so, wow. I mean, I don't want to dwell now too much on the on Felix's illness, but how long? You know, you said that was it a couple of years he was in and out of hospital, or was he in hospital for most of the time? Or well, um, the way that, that it's structured in um, at that particular hospital, they try to take on as many patients in the protocols as they can. So you move locally, if not on site. They teach you how to administer the chemos and drugs yourself. And then you come in once a week for checkups so that they can have, they only have, at that time, they only had 64 beds. 
now they have, I think, 300 and they have 3,700 active patients a year. So we were in and out of the hospital and we lived on an island on the Mississippi, not too far from the hospital, sort of 15 minutes walk. Um, but he spent out of the first 18 months of um, hardcore treatment, he was in the ICU for nine. Wow. Um, so he was extremely unwell. Mm. And he caught, you know, every virus going, every secondary infection you could get. And most of the deaths from childhood leukemias are from secondary infections or viruses because the immune system is destroyed. And that's where, you know, my understanding of contagion and, you know, um, infection control has come in. Okay, well, I'm, I'm glad that you've brought this up. You know, you said feral to sterile, you've mentioned virus and immune systems. I mean, it couldn't be more prevalent in what we're experiencing right now. How, coronavirus aside, how do you feel now when, if and when Felix falls unwell, as, as any child does? We've just had, um, this October was five years all clear. And they've reassured us that um, that's five years off the last day of treatment. Um, after that period, they're very confident that he will never have, um, if he were to get a cancer again, it would be unrelated to the one that he's had. Um, and, you know, that's huge. That's massive, yeah. There, I do, I do, I'm not gonna lie, there is a part of my psyche that will always be completely and utterly terrified that it's gonna happen again. But the trick is to not allow that tiny voice to take control. Um, and I think that goes to, you know, it speaks about positive thought patterns and, you know, learning how to turn down the voice in your head that that is doomsday and i think we are all struggling with that through covid um whenever recently felix has had been having some health issues um and he's not sleeping well at night we're in the middle of the pandemic they've escalated his testings at the moment and referred him back to oncology um, because they can't explain what's going on with, with him. I know that they are doing this as part of genuine concern and, and um, following the right you know, level of escalation for because of his prior history. I know that, I have to know that this is unrelated and I'm extremely grateful that they're giving us the attention and time that we, that he deserves. Is there a part of me that questions that there, sh there should, there might be something else going on? I can't allow that in. I just can't. Um, and I do the best that I can to, to keep a check on how he is, how he's feeling and to keep myself in check. Mm. Gosh, that must be, God, it must be so strong-willed, Kat. Honestly, it's a, it's a... I don't think strong-willed is a, is a great, um, 
reference to me, definitely not. <laughs> I'm just aware of, how can I put this? I'm aware that the energy that you put out towards things is where your energy goes. And if you sit around reminiscing, stressing and driving yourself nuts, it's you that suffers. And by knock on effect, then your children and your family and your greater community. Mm. I completely agree with that sentiment. Um, given, I, I want to come, kind of come to current day um, in a second, but given Felix's prior history, does he, and you know, he said that, you said that he doesn't really remember the treatment when he was, when he was so young. Is he aware of what happens to him now? And do, yes. you know, is Leo, you know, are the twins, does, is every, everyone is aware of, of yeah. what he kind of went through and, and, and things in like my, that? In my, for us, and this worked for us, I don't know if it works for everyone else because I've seen every different permi perm permeation of, of approaches towards, you know, the family afterwards or the family during. Um, it is for us something that we are unbelievably proud of and it's part of our story as a family and you know the girls wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Felix because there's another story around that that they are literally standing miracles um, because I wouldn't I wouldn't have got pregnant with them I wouldn't have had them and they changed his the course of his treatment because we sold it to him you're going to be a big brother you've got to get better you've got to stand up he wasn't sit he wasn't standing eating speaking barely breathing before they were born uh he'd spent nine weeks in the icu just before they were born um and they were born in september on christmas he pulled himself up to look inside their cot wow uh, the miracles never cease you know mm. and we are you know he's got a couple of scars on his chest from where he had um the port that administered the the drugs into his bloodstream and he was called Buddy and, you know, he was part of the family. And when Buddy was taken away, we, we actually had a little service by the river to thank him for being with us and, and releasing him out into the wind. And I know families that want to pretend it never happened and just want to delete and move on. And if that works for them, that's wonderful. But I have seen cases where the kids themselves feel like they're being deleted in a sense and honoring your truth is the most positive way you can handle things for me I've also seen you know families who had a sibling that they sent away to go and live with other family members during treatment and it backfired on them massively because both children felt that they had been either prioritized the other child or had a better deal or they didn't bond you know, my kids are all unbelievably close. I mean, obviously they fight like normal children, but they are a team and they will always survive as a team with or without me. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. Um, and you yourself, you're part of a, a big team as well. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I um, safety in numbers and all of that is, is, so, is so, so powerful. It's a village mentality. You know, you can create that village in any circumstances. You don't just need to be from a big family. Mm -hmm. It's the way that you choose to live your life as part of a community that 
you know, is so positive because we have lots of friends who are singleton children and they're, they're just part of the gang. You know, everyone comes around here. They just become part of a, a little group of feral beasts. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we went from feral to sterile to feral pretty quickly. <laughs> Thank you, by the way, for being so candid and open with your story and Felix's story. It's a, it's a intense but beautiful one. Um, I want to bring it to present day. Uh, you're familiar with immune systems and viruses and the importance of cleanliness. When coronavirus first hit, were you concerned for your family? Were you concerned for Felix? Does he have lower immune system? How were you, how, how did you set up to, to handle what was coming to us? Um, yeah, it was twofold. I mean, it was like coming home in a way, you know, I am, we were so used to living in a hermetically sealed bubble, we'd practically just got out of it. I mean, literally. Uh, I felt equipped to protect and handle other family members and greater, you know, extended family. We actually went to go and stay with my in-laws in in um, the countryside just before the lockdown hit because I I knew, I could see it coming and I wanted to protect them and we weren't sure about Felix's immune system and what you know the the implications of a new quote unquote virus could possibly be to him. Um, thankfully. The child is made of Teflon. I mean, <laughs> he's, you know, come out sort of stronger and wiser and hungrier than any of the other children, which is quite a miracle. Um, but, you know, I, I, I get a lot of phone calls from friends with questions and I'm more than happy to provide what little knowledge I have around, uh, you know, immune well-being let's say prevention and you know elements of contagion control that you can manage would you mind sharing some of those tips or what types of questions you've been asked um now i think a lot of the conversations that i have with people are around isolation quarantine days of exposure um whether or not people are contagious before you know nobody really understands what it means i mean one of the most typical questions i i get from friends and family is am i contagious before i show symptoms or are other people contagious before they show symptoms and I think it's one of the things that we're not talking about the most, which is important that yes, <laughs> essentially the answer is that once you have been exposed to COVID-19 and even if you're asymptomatic, but you actually contract the disease, you are contagious for a few days before any symptoms show up and that's why it's quite important for people to be aware of 
putting themselves into isolation when someone close to them has been exposed or sorry someone close to them has tested positive because what's happening is a lot of people are going about their everyday lives for those you know five to seven days before symptoms occur and spreading without intentionally realizing that they're doing it um people ask me about masks a lot and you know at this point for me the main reason for people to be observing this request by the general public or for the general public is not just to protect themselves but to protect others i do think that that is really important that we're not paying enough attention to the idea that we're out there when we're out there on the road going about our business with our masks on doing our shopping or taking public transport or whatever it is we need to be thinking about protecting other people about the fact that even if for example i've had covid i had it before um lockdown before that it had been recognized or understood what was going on i had this terrible flu with a cough and my immune system is completely destroyed and I've had long COVID pretty much ever since. Um, symptoms are exhaustion and headaches, backaches, but for everyone it's different. But that doesn't stop me from considering others. I don't know whether I could catch it again. I don't know if I caught it yesterday when I was out shopping. And if I did, I don't want to give it to anyone else. I don't want to give it to my neighbor who may give it to their mother whose mother might die. And I feel it's very important that we think about that aspect of this pandemic because there is a lot of fear around and a lot of people who are really scared of getting it. But the only way we can control the spread of the virus until vaccines are available for everyone is to protect other people and to think about the social awareness of the greater community or your smaller community because we're asked to stay local yeah i don't know if it's a factor of where we live this city the country it's it's the sort of social solidarity i've actually been really surprised at how poorly we regard each other's well-being over our own personal protection of our of ourselves mm. that maybe, that's, I, maybe that, that's quite harsh but um I think no no I completely see that too but you know what's beautiful is this the whole concept of this pandemic is that it brings us together as as, as the human race we think we understand that it can affect everyone and it can take anyone down it's it's completely random as far as the side effects of how serious it can be for one person to the next and at the beginning, we did have this solidarity and standing behind, you know, key workers and the NHS and how fortunate we are to have such an incredible healthcare system. But on the flip side of that, we're also almost being influenced of be afraid, retreat from others, you know, stand away, social distance, to but we're missing the element, the crucial element is that it's not just about protecting yourself, but it's about protecting your neighbours too. 
I'm not not wearing my mask because I don't want to wear my mask. I'm, I'm wearing it as a sign to others that I'm concerned about their welfare. That's really, really nice. Not everyone has that. Not everyone has that. I think it's important. Cat, I've got just a couple more questions to ask you. Um, I wanted to bring it back to kids. Um, I, I spoke to somebody the other day uh, who said that she read somewhere that kids these days are getting complexes about cleanliness, you know, constantly being told to wash their hands, um, not really being allowed to touch things until they've washed their hands. Can you see this becoming an issue for the younger generation of kids that are kind of living through this? And if you do, how do you think parents, from your own experience, maybe be able to sort of prevent that from becoming an issue for them in the long run? You know, I mean, that goes back to definitely whatever anxieties you feel as a human or a parent, you display onto your children. And your fears, your stress levels, basic, even down to, you know, your, your energy in the room when you're with your kids, they pick up on everything. They are sponges. And it's all in the way, for me personally, it's all in the way that you sell it to them. You know, yes, we need to be careful about uh, contagion control and uh, following basic protocols, which include, by the way, not sneezing into your hand and wiping it on your sister's face, you know. But those were basics that we shouldn't be doing before COVID. So we have to accept that for the foreseeable future, we're going to have to be careful about uh, the airborne pathogen viruses. Does it mean that we're all going to end up with OCD and washing our hands, you know, until they bleed? God, I hope not. But if you if you explain it to your kids that it's nothing to be afraid of and that we're doing the basic measures to keep ourselves and others safe, and then they can get involved and they can own it as part of their experience rather than it being an evil monster outside of them and outside of their family that they can't control that's going to kill everybody. And I can see that anxiety is palpable in the children whose parents are the ones who are freaking out. And I'm not saying don't freak out, but you gotta downplay it and act casual around your kids because you're damaging them by, uh, you know, overreacting or, and I, I'm also not saying don't talk to them about it and keep them completely in a little happy bubble. That's not reality. Reality is them living now in, in this day and age with all that they're going to teach us, by the way, because my God, they can navigate an iPad like it's going out of fashion, you know? So the least I can do for them is help them navigate their physical world in a positive way and hope that, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, of course they can sense my stress levels, but I always try to bring it back to, we can talk about it if you have any questions. Yes, I feel this way, but it's not forever. You know, there's always ways of soothing your child into accepting their reality. 
Yeah, that's really, that's really, really good advice for parents with little ones, but also just for adults in general, I think. (laughs) So nailed that one. Thank you. Um, I've got one last question um, and then I will let you get back to your beautiful children. Um, If somebody's listening with a sick little one at home, whether it's COVID or something else, and they're feeling anxious or slightly overwhelmed by all of it, Do you have any advice for them? Go with your gut. You know, if you are worried, it's way better to get someone to tell you that everything is going to be okay than to sit there and worry and blame yourself if something, you know, goes wrong. And I'm not saying run down to A&E every time they bang their toe. Like at my house, we don't go to the hospital unless like I can't sew it up myself. but I've been through a lot. So, you know, it's, it's relative, but they always say, if, if you're worried, go call the GP. And at this time, it's fantastic. You can send them a picture, a text, and you can have a phone call conversation. And if they're concerned, they'll give you the right advice. Don't ever, you know, put, feel as though you don't have the right to ask questions in in order to find to have you know knowledge is power and if you are worried the best thing you can do is talk about it with someone preferably a healthcare professional who can give you good advice and alongside of that I would say again try to keep your chin up and keep smiling for your child and allow them to feel in a safe space no matter how worried you are because there is a you know there's a lot of information around the sort of mental well-being of unwell child children rather and there's a lot to be said for humor and laughter I mean I have seen some pretty hideous things come out of my son but I can make him laugh afterwards and even though inside I was actually dying (laughs) you know so yeah it's kind of a a good balance between um doing what you feel you need to do um reassure yourself but constantly reassure your child in the meantime that's incredibly powerful and um very very sound advice Kat um thank you so much for telling taking time out of your busy busy schedule to share this story with us and all of your learnings and strength and inspiration it is truly an incredible part of your family story and I'm really really grateful that you shared it with us oh my absolute pleasure it was lovely to chat with you oh it was my absolute pleasure Kat thank you so so much (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.